Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello. We're glad you're listening today. Uh, Garden Success is a call-in show, so I hope you will write down our number and give us a call. It's a good day to be talking on the phone and listening to the radio because we don't want to be outside, do we? Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689. Or you can email at gardensuccess, one word, at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And we have a few emails to go through today. Uh, but I do invite you to call. I always enjoy getting to talk to you guys on the phone, hearing your questions. And I know if you have a question, a lot of other people will too. We see that a lot. In fact, I've got some emails that are uh, basically the same question coming from different folks. So uh, let's uh, give us a call. We'll look forward to that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the weather and kind of things we would be doing right now because of the weather. Uh, it, you know, the cold is is unpleasant to be out there uh, in but it's not really a threat to our gardens and our crops uh, we we got down close to a freeze maybe some of you did get a freeze i i think most areas i checked did not uh, but it's very cool and rainy now one of the nice things about this kind of weather is if you have a fruit tree this is a uh, good weather to get chilling hours in and i don't mean 32 degrees uh, i mean up around 40 degrees uh, we, we get really good chilling hours in that range. Um, so when you have cooler weather, it tends to cool things off. You know how it is. You get your hand wet and put it outside. Uh, evaporative cooling occurs. And so even a little drizzly can kind of help cool things off a little bit uh, into that range where we get uh, chilling hours. So overcast days like this are good. Now, if you've got a fruit tree that requires a lot of hours of chilling, uh, you can... Uh, be appreciative of these kind of conditions. And again, when we say uh, chilling, we're not talking about how cold can it get. We're talking about down around 40 degrees. And there's a range, you know, it's not just at 40, but in five or 10 degrees off of that, up to 45, maybe a little down below 40. Um, and, and so as the clock ticks through those kind of hours, the tree gets ready to wake up. And when we have a, a year without much chilling, and we had one a couple of years ago, I believe, very low chilling. And a lot of trees just didn't wake up because they thought that it wasn't spring yet, even though the weather was warm. Uh, then in the years where we get a whole lot of chilling, early on, uh, maybe a warm day in early February, the 
peach trees, especially ones that are a little too low chill for our area, start popping out blooms, and oh boy, here we go. We're going to have to deal with frosts and freezes still to come. So uh, this is good weather to get those things ready to go. I think, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball so I'd know when the last freeze of the year was going to be, uh, but I don't. Uh, but as far as averages are concerned, and I've said before what I think about an average, uh, an average basically means that you're always wrong, except occasionally. So if the average last frost date, let's say, was going to be February 26th, well, it almost never the last frost date is February 26. It's earlier, it's later. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're getting to that point. We are at that point of our, our average last frost date this next week, within this next week, uh, we, we will fall within the range of that. Depending on how far back in the year you go to, to come up with your, the years, to come up with your average. So uh, I, I would encourage you as you're planting fruit trees, uh, make sure and pick ones that do well here. Now I'm going to pause a minute and go to the phones, and I'll continue that thought in just a moment. Uh, our phone number, 845-5689, and let's talk to Rakesh. Hello, Rakesh. Yeah, hi, Skip. This is Rakesh. Yes. I got an email uh, from I, you. Is that what this call's about? Uh, yes, I sent you the e an email also earlier today. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this... Yeah, and this is about, we got uh, two new live oak trees planted mm -hmm. about six weeks ago, and they were pretty good at that time, but in the last seven to ten days, I noticed that some of the leaves are turning brown. Yes, yes. And uh, the water, uh, th there is plenty of water in the ground, so I have not watered additional uh so I was one, and, and I've sent you some pictures of that one. Yes. Uh, one tree seems to be worse than the other. Okay. I wanted your opinion as to what is happening. Okay. Well, I will be happy to give that. And I have looked at your pictures. Uh, thanks, oh, okay. for, thanks for sending those. Um, so live oak trees, uh, we think of them as evergreen, but they, they do go through a transition, which all evergreens do. Uh, where uh, an individual leaf is not going to live for 10 years. It's going to live for about a year and then fall off and uh, be replaced by new growth. I think, okay. these, I think these haven't been in long enough for the conditions in your site to have caused this. So in other words, if you over or underwatered with the cool weather we've had, zero stress on the plants, uh, this is not related to that. Now, with, okay. with the live oaks, you do want to avoid uh, overwatering. They don't want to be in a swamp. Uh, but you, as far as, you know, worrying about um, uh, underwatering or overwatering now, I wouldn't. I think they were in a pretty active growth straight state, being fertilized a lot, based on the growth I see that uh, the, okay. when you got the trees, you had a lot of new growth. And I think this is probably related to cold weather. Uh, these these leaves and on a live oak, typically as we move into spring and the new growth comes on the plants, the old leaves okay. start to fall off. They look bad. They fall off. Some trees you almost don't notice it at all in terms of looking okay. at the tree. You notice it on the ground, but you don't notice it so much looking at the tree. Other trees almost go bare but as the new growth comes then on in. That's not common for them to go that far but but they can because they're all genetically different so okay. i would i would say that um 
your your trees are are, are fine. Uh, I wouldn't worry about them yet. Just uh, make sure, and I can't see the base of the tree in the photos, but make sure that the mulch isn't piled up deep against the trunk. Uh, and the, the other thing I would do is readjust those straps so that rather than, um, uh, you know, being very tight, they allow the tree to move just a little bit. Um, okay. Because movement helps to strengthen that trunk. And after that tree has been in, for certainly for six months, you should not need straps anymore. Uh, go, okay. ahead, go ahead and take them off. Uh, if it was right. a well-grown tree, it should be well-established by that time. All right. The, this is the second thing. The first thing you mentioned, I did. I I, I could not catch that. Uh, you wanted to see in the picture the bottom part and particularly what part of it. Yes, a a, a tree, whether it grows from a seed or it's being sold to you as a a container-grown tree. Uh, when it comes out of the ground, the base flares out. You see this on old trees in an exaggerated way. Uh, but they don't go into the ground like a telephone pole does, where they're the same size all the way down until they enter the ground. They have a basal flare. And so even a young tree should have a little basal flare because that top root should be pretty close to the soil surface. And and I can't see the base of your trees, but if okay. the, if the so soil or mulch was piled up against the tree and you don't see that flare, go ahead and pull it back and so that you can you can expose that and keep wet mulch from sitting up against the trunk. Okay, okay. I will check on that one. Uh, all right. All right. So basically, this is a normal thing. I was getting concerned that, you know, something bad, some... Well, some uh, yeah, well, it's normal. I'm going to say it's... I'm going to say it's a no concern. I, I I don't know if I want to use the word normal for it. it normally, the trees... Are, are are not going to be brand new trees, you know, going through a winter, but they they can be, and I just think it's a combination of the condition they were in and then the weather uh, that that we've had uh, with okay. pr a pretty good cold freeze here recently. All right. Okay. Thank you. All right. I hey, Ricky, yeah. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. So I was talking about fruit trees and chilling hours. And so when you pick uh, your tree, now with with figs uh, and with persimmons, uh, I'm just trying to think of others, like certainly citrus, that we don't have chilling hour issues that we deal with here. Uh, but with, with peaches, uh, with plums, with apples, and to some degree with pears, not not so much, but to some degree, the, the, we have the chilling hour question when we're picking a variety and you want to pick a variety for this area that is in the range of about 600 chilling hours now if it's if it's 500 that's probably okay if it's 700 that's getting really high but some years you'll get a crop uh, but I would say maybe 550 to 650 which is why I mentioned 600 that's a pretty good range and every year is different so if you're going to plant more than one tree you definitely would want to plant more than one variety, in my opinion, because number one, you get fruit maybe at a different time. They don't all ripen at the same time. Uh, and uh, then you also can hedge your bet a little bit on chilling hours because we never know what kind of winter we're going to have. Um, we know what the tree will do, but we don't know what our winter is going to give the tree. And so that that's kind of what we're talking about here. So anyway, pick that. Uh, with, with peaches, you don't need to worry about pollinators when you're purchasing them. The same is true with figs and persimmons. Um, 
With pears, some set okay without a pollinator, but some do a little better if you have a pollinator. Apples, uh, all, well, I would just say apples always need a pollinator, uh, for especially the kind we're planting here. Uh, and then with plums, it's, it's hit and miss. And I'm going to talk about plums uh, because of another email in a moment. Uh, but plums, some need a pollinator and, and some don't. Uh, and so when you're picking your plants, pick the right chill hours. Uh, Provide some variety for pollination if it's needed for that particular kind of plant. And I think you'll be off to a good start. Good sun, good drainage. And I know there are a lot of fruit trees still out there in the in the marketplace in our area for, for you to purchase and take home. Uh, sun is important. And here here's why. And I, I was... I was having a, I did an educational program this morning, and, and someone asked about roses. What's the best rose if it's shady? Well, there isn't a good rose for the shade. Now, there are some that will tolerate a little bit of shade a little better than other roses. But as far as if you've got shade, you need to make sun in that spot or move the spot, uh, move to another spot to plant your, your rose bushes. And, and the reason is that uh, while you can grow a rose bush or a peach tree in a lot of shade, uh, you won't get fruit and blooms and fruit. And, and, and uh, sunlight shines on the leaves. Think of the leaves as solar panels that are factories. And those factories make carbohydrates, and carbohydrates drive the growth, blooming, and fruiting of the plant. And so if you're going to produce a vegetable or a fruit tree or a rose bush, and you want blooms and fruit on that on that plant or roots in the case of vegetables it takes a lot of carbohydrates to do that uh, think about a carrot a carrot takes it, it's sweet and it has carbohydrates a potato a uh, sweet potato root is is full of carbohydrates a peach is on a peaches on a peach tree and even just the blooms on plants like roses and so without a lot of carbohydrates it cannot bloom and fruit well uh, just can't as well. So we get them in at least six hours of sun. We'd like more than that, uh, and they do their best. And so when you're going to invest in a tree, take the time to pick a good variety, put it in a good spot, and part of a good spot is also uh, good drainage. And if you have to build up a mound to get up out of a low area, you can do that if, if low is your only option. Uh, but good drainage is also important. And then get that thing planted now so that it has time to get roots established before the hot weather arrives. Well, let's go back to the phones, and we're going to talk to Rosemary. Hello, Rosemary. Hello. I have a question about fertilizing uh, my orange trees. Uh, I want to be reminded of when and also how much. Okay. Um, is it truly an orange, or is it a satsuma, or or, or what? I just want to make sure. <laughs> okay, it is actually an, an orange. Okay, uh, grown grown from seed from uh, Valencia from HEB. Oh my! Look yeah. at you! And how long has it been growing? Um, this is its sixth winter, so there actually have four. Uh, the the two that are doing the best are about eight feet tall. They would be taller, but we cut the tops off so that we can cover them. I was, I was, my next question was, how on earth did you get there last February? <laughs> well, they lost all their leaves, but then in mid-April, they started putting out a little bit just from the bottom of the trunk. And by the end of the summer, they had pretty much replaced all the leaves that they lost. Not quite all, but... Wow. 
So did you, you covered them during the freeze last February? We did, but, you know, it just wasn't enough. <laughs> we, did, did you have any heat under the cover, or was it just we, a cover? Well, we do have. My husband ran electricity out to each of the spots, okay. and we had a shop light, 75 watts. Okay. That, that, of course, wasn't enough. Well, it, if, if you sealed off the dead airspace and provided a little bit of heat under there, it made a difference. Now, may, I won't say that that is a way in the future to expect to get through seven degrees, but uh, I'm impressed that they're alive. Uh, so you must have a, a citrus thumb or something. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Well, uh, okay, so um, the best time to fertilize them would be as they begin their growth in the spring, uh, but I would fertilize them more than once through the summer uh, and moderate amounts. Now, when a, when a tree freezes back, it's got a lot of root system that didn't freeze, and so you get that vigorous regrowth because it, it's trying to rebalance itself, the top and the bottom, above ground and below ground. Uh, and so you don't need to fertilize it at, at that kind of stage of the situation. But if you've got trees that, that have top growth and you want to encourage them to go ahead and grow, a moderate amount of fertilizer. And so by that, uh, I would... Do you have them pruned to a single trunk now? Um. They, yeah, they sort of prune themselves. Okay. Um, okay. So if, if you can look at the trunk, and of course I can't picture your trees right now, but uh, for every inch of trunk diameter, I would give them a cup or two cups of fertilizer, one or two cups of lawn fertilizer, like a, a 3 one ratio lawn fertilizer. Okay. Uh, and if you use organic, you're going to have to double or triple that because the concentration is lower in the in the product but um one or two cups per inch of trunk diameter and i would do it in the spring after we're way past uh the freeze and frost season probably i would say maybe april uh as as they get growing uh and and then if they lack vigor uh you can do it again a little fertilizing in the summer just stop fertilizing uh by no later than about the beginning of august because you don't want to a lot of things spur growth, temperature, uh, moisture in the soil, uh, and, and nutrients. And so if you if you push them with nitrogen and you get a lot of good succulent growth in the fall, they're not going to be that hardy going into winter. So don't mm-hmm. fertilize them past about the 1st of, of August. Okay. Uh, and, and you can do your fertilizing in smaller amounts. You want to spread it as wide as the branch spread of the tree. Uh, and it can go a little beyond that, but don't you know dump it all at the base. Uh, and uh, I think you'll be in pretty good shape. Keep as, the mulch as wide as you can around the tree to, so it's not competing with lawns and other weeds and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that ought to be good. And, and let me know when those things finally fruit. I'd be curious. Yeah, I'm hoping, hoping next year maybe. I've okay. Seven years from seed, so next yeah. will be the year. Yeah, and it's hard to say how long it takes these species. They they vary a lot depending on growing conditions and and whatnot. But um, who knows? Uh, you may you may be having some orange juice before too long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thank thanks very much. Yeah, thank you for the call. I appreciate that. Our phone number is eight four five five six eight nine eight four five. 5689 or email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Kimberly emails about a lime tree she has, and um, her uh, lime tree is about a year old in a pot, 
and it produced some limes last summer and now she would like to plant it in the ground and so what would I recommend for success in transplanting? Well, um, number one, I would really think about if you want it in the ground and why. If you want the, a bigger tree, putting it in the ground would be a reason for that because it can grow larger in the ground than it can grow in a pot. Uh, but limes can be grown in a larger pot, like a half whiskey barrel size or something close to that, uh, and get pretty good size. The nice thing about a container is you can put a dolly under the lip of the pot and put a strap around it and run it into the garage, and limes are very cold sensitive. So, you know, being able to move it in is good. If it goes in the ground, you're going to have, uh, I would just say, several times in the winter where you have to do something to protect that plant and something significant, uh, more than a cover, maybe cover with a little source of heat underneath. So that I would think about that. If you like the look of it being in the ground, you could put it in a little bit larger container. Maybe think of something, oh, I don't know, the size of five gallons of soil or something a little larger than that. And you could actually sink the container in the ground um, and so it looks like it's in the ground, and that way it could be pulled up again. Uh, that's a little work to move it in and out that way, but at least that would give you a, a chance uh, of, of having it in the ground, but yet at the same time in winter it could come up and be brought in again and then go back out. That last idea is not my favorite uh, uh, for sure, and it has its issues, but that would just be an option. But uh, enjoy your lime. They're another uh, fun citrus to grow. Well, uh, let's see. Let's go to the phones now and talk to John. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing well. It got a little chilly last night up here. Well, I thought you know, I thought you were in charge and not letting that happen. I've been very disappointed when well, I got up this we, morning. We actually, we were too optimistic that the weatherman was exaggerating, but it turned out he was. <laughs> Okay. Well, we won't bash the weatherman. That happens too much. The, uh, I know you've answered this several times, but I just forgot what you said. On, on fireplace ashes, is there anywhere in the you can use that in the garden at all? You can use it in, uh, in a lot of places. Here's the thing about ashes. There are a concentration of nutrients, not all the nutrients, not all at all imbalance. Uh, I would actually have to go back and look again, but I want to say there's a lot of potassium, um, probably phosphorus and some other things that are a little higher in there but but check me on that one before you you take that for granted um, and they're higher in pH uh, also and so if you overdo it uh, you can either make a high pH problem worse or I've seen places where there were burn piles with just high concentrations of ashes where things didn't want to grow after that because of the extreme soil change uh, but a moderate amount, and as, as to what a moderate amount is, I would say it depends on your soil type and um, the, the existing nutrient and pH content of your soil. So if it was a little acidic, uh, then you'd probably be able to get away with a little more ashes than if it was a higher pH, for example. Okay. Oh, and you also talked about this, too, but Mary can't remember. The, the, the milkweed, you said to put the seeds in the refrigerator for a month. About about a month, about thirty days in moist stratification. So they're they they're they're moist. They're not soggy wet, uh, but but they're very moist, and they're uh, protected from drying out with a ziploc or jar or whatever you want to use. 
and then uh, about 30 days, and, and they should be ready to sprout. That's the, most most milkweed. The uh, swamp milkweed the same as the yes. tropical? Uh, the tropical would not need to have the refrigeration, uh, to, with my experiences. Uh, but um, the the rest of the milkweeds, and I am not a milkweed expert, uh, but I have talked to milkweed experts, and I did sleep in a Holiday Inn last night. So I would say that, <laughs> uh, sorry, bad joke, uh, that the rest of the milkweeds, I think, would all, I would all, I would do the stratification for 30 days on all of them. Okay, but but the tropical tropical no need. Tropical no need. I wouldn't hurt to do it, uh, and you know nature does it already. Uh, you know you think like things like peaches and plum seeds also need moist stratification, but when they hit the ground in the summer and then they go through a the thing about today there is stratification happening out there in the in the dirt um, because of the the kind of moist cool weather we're having. Okay, well that's it for today. <laughs> Right. Well, very good. Uh, warm it up so we can get outside. I've got so many plants. I, I'm trying to figure out where to put them inside, and I, I need I need our, to get our, them. Light, our light table is overflowing right now. <laughs> we, we got uh, I don't know. Mary has twelve or sixteen tomato plants that are up about two inches now. And anyway, we're just running out of room. Yeah, you better watch out. There there may not be room for you in the house. I mean, we all have to prioritize, and when we're gardeners, plants come first, John. Right. <laughs> I, I recognize that. <laughs> you, you guys have a good time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or email gardensuccess at tamu. Dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu and earlier i said i'd talk about plums a bit uh, beth emails about uh, what are some good plums for this area and uh, first of all, I'll use this as an opportunity to talk again about the Aggie Horticulture website, uh, aggie-horticulture.tamu.edu. There is a publication called Plums and Other Stone Fruit. And under plums, you'll find that they have, there's three plums that we would consider in this area as being time-tested. Now, there are a lot of other plums, a lot of new plums, uh, Auburn, University has been breeding some plums over the years, uh, and they've released some that, that could do okay. Uh, th it's all about chill hours with these things. But uh, Methley does well here. If you want one plum tree and you want to eat plums, uh, Methley is the one. It's very self-fruitful. Uh, it also is a pollinator for other plums. But Methley, the drawbacks to Methley are uh, they're kind of soft. They don't uh, store as well. So instead of a more of a, think of a crispier type of plum, it's going to be a much softer type of plum. But it's a good plum. Uh, Santa Rosa is a larger purplish plum that uh, kind of, ev it even has a flesh that is, is kind of a, uh, a goldeny. I don't know. I'm not. I'm going to quit trying to describe it. But uh, it, it's a it's a beautiful a beautiful uh, inside and out, and it does well. Uh, Bruce is is the third. Bruce is a large plum uh, that uh, definitely does require the pollination to set fruit. Uh, Methylene can be a good a good pollinator for Bruce. So I might hedge my bet if you got room with two for two plums. If not, just go ahead and go with the methylene. Now there, there is one other technique, and some of you, I always like to use questions to answer a bigger question. 
Some of you may have, I just got through talking about all these fruit trees that need to be pollinated. You may have one and go, oh my gosh, I've had this tree for five years. It's never fruited. Now I know why. But by the time I buy a plant and put it in and wait for it to grow up so it can pollinate each other, uh, that's a long time. Well, you can cheat a little bit. If you've got a friend or neighbor who has, uh, let's just use plums as an example, who has a plum tree that's a different variety than yours, uh, you can go over during bloom season and prune out a little shoot with blooms on it. And um, I, I will take one like that, maybe put it in a, a jar or a can that you can hang in the tree, a little, you know, cut the top out of a soft drink can, hang it in the tree and, and put some water in it and let the bees do the cross-pollinating for you. They don't, uh, they don't check out the shoot to make sure it's attached to the tree they're, they're pollinating. Uh, and so those flowers are as good as any other flowers as long as they're fresh. Uh, you may leave them for you know two or three days, and if it looks like they need replacing, you could put a new shoot in there. Uh, I would do several of those in the tree, and you can kind of get by that way uh, until your new tree reaches a size where it's blooming and can... Um, can do the pollination uh, itself, but those are some plums. There are a lot of other plums out there. I would, uh, you know, I would check it out. I I didn't take time to uh, during this call try to or during this show try to look up other varieties, but there are some others. Uh, we haven't had a plum trial here in a good while, and we probably need to uh, to see some uh, check out some of these new new things that are on the market and make sure we got some that maybe can expand our selection just a little bit. Uh, let's see, our phone number is 845-5689-845-5689 or by email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And I have a couple of questions on fig tree pruning. Uh, one is from Beth. And uh, last February, uh, their tree was hammered by the cold, I mean taken to the ground. And as we would expect after that, this tree has sent shoots up everywhere. There are dozens of new shoots. This is a this was a big old tree, apparently, uh, judging from the stumps that are cut off at the base and by the number of shoots coming out, dozens of shoots. Uh, I would recommend picking, let's say, somewhere between five and maybe seven of those shoots spaced out not all together, but spaced out around that stump, and removing all the others and letting those five or seven uh, kind of grow into a fig bush. Um, figs can be trained to a tree, but the, uh, the number of times when we have a killing freeze here and it takes them back, it, then everything you did trying to prune them up into a tree is, is essentially you get to start over. And so multi-trunk fig bushes are an acceptable uh, way to go. Now, a fig is going to produce on wood that grew in the previous, on, excuse me, on buds that new shoots that come out of last year's wood. So if you've got an old, old three-year-old branch, uh, typically you're not going to get a shoot with a lot of figs on it. Uh, so you would, we would, we would want to be able to have last year's growth to be able to grow new figs. So all of that said, I would like those of you who have had some significant damage from cold uh, to tell me how how did your figs do this year as they grew? Did you did you get much, if anything? And was it a normal time crop or a much later crop? Uh, but anyway, uh, that's what I would do with that one, Beth. It's going to be a lot of pruning, but uh, winter 
really hammered that thing. And so uh, you're fortunate to have such a good, strong tree to begin with because it'll, it'll fill in really, really nice now. Uh, another question on fig pruning uh, from Emily. Uh, Emily uh, even included a photo, too, also, of, of her fig. And this is a, a really nice little fig bush that apparently didn't suffer some cold. So I'm kind of cur curious what variety that is and if they protected it or not. And the question is how to prune it. And it has a lot of shoots coming out from the bottom. And typically when that happens, you'll have some shoots that are more upright and then some that almost go horizontally and then turn upward. And those are shoots that are down low near the ground. Now, if you want to expand your mulched area, which would make the fig happy, uh, you could leave those shoots and that would be fine. Otherwise, they're in the way of trying to mow around the plant. And... Um, they're down really, really low. So I would prune up the lowest ones to things that are a little more upright. And in the case of Emily, your plant, this isn't a bunch of re-sprouts coming from a frozen stump. Uh, this is the tree itself. Uh, and it, it uh, I am amazed, but it, it, it survived, uh, did pretty good. Maybe it was just planted uh, last year. That, that could be the reason too. Uh, but figs are easy to grow. You don't have to fertilize them a lot. In fact, you don't have to fertilize them at all. Uh, but you can fertilize them a little, but just don't too much because it just pushes a whole lot of new growth, and they're already vigorous enough as it is. Uh, in most cases, they, they should do just fine. Our phone number is 845-5689 and email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, I want to go back to the emails now and a few things uh, from Sally. Uh, Sally sends a couple of pictures from the tropical milkweed, also called Mexican milkweed, and there are black and orange bugs on them. And they look different uh, from each other. Uh, some of them are almost all orange. Some of them uh, have a few little black spots and then a couple of black uh, things on their backs uh, and then... Uh, it's just a variation. And what those are, are those are called milkweed bugs. So that was an easy answer, wasn't it? Milkweed, milkweed bug. Um, aptly named. They are a member of the true bug order, Hemiptera. So they're related to stink bugs and, and even the beneficial true bugs. Uh, these particular bugs suck juices from the milkweed plant, but I have never seen uh, a situation where they seem to be really hurting that plant significantly. So I would recommend not treating it. The other reason I would recommend not treating for them is that we are wanting uh, monarchs to lay eggs and have caterpillars eating the leaves of that plant so we don't want pesticide on it. Uh, or maybe things visiting the blooms and so we don't want pesticide on it. Uh, so I would ignore them. True bugs, when they when they, I don't want to say hatch out, when they're born, they're little, well, they do hatch out. The, the uh, little bugs don't have wings. And even all of the ones in your picture, even the oldest ones in the picture, the later stage nymphs, uh, still don't have wings that can fly. You can see the start of a wing coming on there. So as long as they don't have wings, a cluster of bugs like that, you could put a, a pail or a cup of soapy water under it and swat that thing with your hand, and they knock them all off into the water. You didn't have to spray, and you got, got rid of a dozen or two of them uh, that way. So I, I, would, I would do that. The bugs aren't doing the plant any good, uh, but if you don't want to do anything, that would be fine too, and they're gonna, the plant's going to be okay. Uh, let's go back to the phones and talk to Kate. Hello, Kate. 
Howdy. Howdy. I think I'm becoming one of your regulars. Uh, well, I hope today so. I have, <laughs> today I have a really short and sweet, simple question. Okay. When historically is the last freeze in Bryan College Station? And I know that's nothing we can count on, but just, you know, yes. looking forward. Uh, I used to uh, have information that it was February 28th. In fact, at, at, a, at one point, it was in early uh, March. Uh, I did a search the other day on the NOAA website looking at historic data and things like that, and I only did the past 10 years more recently. A lot of times data is taken over a 20-year period. And uh, the last 10 years, I came up with, um, let's see, it was February 26th, and I'm trying to remember now, there's a difference between frost and freeze dates because you can have frost when the air temperature is above freezing. And so the frost date would go later into the spring than the freeze date would uh, because, you know, it doesn't quite get down cold enough to freeze, but you have a frost, so it's it's a later date. Uh, but I think on the freeze, it's the about about next week. <laughs> How about that? Okay. Uh, that's uh, soon enough for me. And then um, you just have to pray that it's an average year. <laughs> true, 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 true. Okay. But uh, is frost necessarily uh, bad for plants, or does it just affect the kind of tropical ones? It, well, it definitely affects tropical. In fact, some, most of our tropicals don't even like it in the in the 40s. Uh, some of them get unhappy at around 50. Uh, like tropical hibiscus is not going to put up with that at all. Uh, Forget about the frost. Uh, frost does damage plants because it is ice on the plant. And the reason frost is forming is because the leaf tissues are radiating, radiating out their heat faster than the air is cooling down. And so you now have a very, think of it this way, you have a leaf that is below freezing even though the air temperature isn't and frost forms on it. It's the same physics principle is why your glass of iced tea in the summer has water droplets form on the outside. It's moisture from the air condensing on the cold tea glass, and that's how frost forms on our plants. And so, uh, yes, frost can damage plants because the plants are getting below freezing in that situation. Now, this may be an old wives' tale, but years ago I heard the best thing to do anticipating a freeze is water your plants. Well, you know, a lot of those, um, as wives' tales, as you, as you mentioned, uh, and a lot of other claims are based on truth, but not always true, or maybe taken to an extent where they become untrue. So here, here's how that is for that particular uh, wives' tale. Uh, the, um, if a plant is stressed from lack of water going into cold, it's going to be, often, it's going to be less hardy. And so giving uh, the, the ground an irrigation to moisten and help those roots and help the plant leading up to a freeze is a good thing. Now, doing it right, you know, 5 o'clock that afternoon when it's going to freeze that night is not going to help much. The, uh -huh. other, the other way that watering helps is water holds moisture or holds heat better than than air does. And so if your soil is moist uh, and the sun is shining on the soil during the day, then that evening when it's getting cold, you have heat radiating up from the ground. And, and when we say heat, we don't mean um, 
80 degrees, 90 degrees. It's we're, not discernible, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about 55 degrees is heat on a freezing night, right? And so we're you're getting uh, warmth coming up a little bit better in a moist soil. Now, if your soil is already wet, watering doesn't do any good. And, in fact, it can do harm because you're oversaturating the soil. Mm -hmm. And now the plant is dealing with anaerobic, no oxygen in the root system. And it's so cold that the plant isn't pumping water. And so it stays soggy wet for longer than it might in the summer. And so, yeah, just watering itself is not necessarily going to help. But under those conditions I mentioned, it would. Great. Wealth of information. Thank you, Skip. All right, Kate, thanks for the call. Stay warm. Uh, let's go back to our phones here. Let's see. Okay. All right. Um, we had a question about um, pruning roses. Uh, I wrote an article in the Eagle on pruning roses. And um, talking about trimming them, you can trim them in February. It's a good time. And the question was about some sort of a how-to guide for the novice pruner. Uh, well, rose books are probably the best place to get that kind of information. There, there's a lot of information on pruning. There is also information online on pruning um, as well. You can do a Google search for pruning roses. The American Rose Society has some educational uh, uh, features of their website that will teach you how to prune roses. Uh, I believe we have a local rose society and their meetings would be another way to go visit with, with uh, members. The thing about pruning roses is there's a lot of different kinds of roses. And if you have a hybrid tea, they're being severely pruned so you get the long upright shoots for cut flowers. Uh, and so those are pruned very severely. If your rose is a shrub rose, like the knockout roses that are everywhere around town, uh, shrub roses are more sheared into a shrub-type form. We, know we don't shear them regularly and make them square like a, like a hedge, but uh, you don't worry so much about all the detail pruning. You just, you just cut it back. Uh, in general, little twiggy growth can come out of plants. That's not going to do much good. Uh, with the shrub roses, you may cut them back by a third. It kind of depends on uh, when you're doing the pruning. This time of year, I, I usually cut mine back by about a third. Uh, but then I'll also prune them later because I'm trying to keep them a little more compact than they would grow if left unpruned. Uh, miniature roses are pruned a little bit differently. They're different. And then the climbing roses, most climbing roses are uh, once bloomers, not all, but most of them, like Lady Banks is a good example. Uh, it blooms in the spring and then it doesn't bloom again through the year. So if you prune them now, you're pruning away uh, those, those blooms that you would be enjoying in a few weeks or a couple of months. And so you want to avoid pruning climbers until after they bloom, except for the, the few climbers that, that do bloom repeatedly through the year that continue to bloom in cycles like most of our uh, landscape roses do. Um, so the climbers are pruned differently. With a lot of climbers, I, what I like to do is rather than try to prune them, because they're long, lanky shoots that are trying to grow up and around and down and everywhere, is I, I get them on my trellis and kind of wind the shoots, shoots back and forth so they're more in a horizontal 
uh, direction than a vertical direction going straight up. And you get a little bit better bloom production. Now, I don't mean that if you wind them now in February, you're going to have better blooms this spring. I mean that as they're growing during the season, you're orienting them that way. And they set the bloom buds uh, late summer, early fall, that, that general time. Uh, and then they bloom better in the spring. Now, you may not want to go to that much trouble, but that's an option. Uh, so as you can see, it, it's, for me at least, it's hard to, to simplify rose pruning much beyond that. Uh, but when you get online with a reputable source, you're going to find a lot of good information. And by the way, a, a good way to find information online, certainly here uh, at Texas A&M, the source of all earthly knowledge, we have a lot of good information on horticulture and growing things. Uh, but if you want to search and, and use research-based sources as your information, which I hope you do, uh, you can add to whatever you put into your search box, site colon dot edu, s-i-t-e colon dot edu. So let's just say you had a question on pruning roses and you wanted to not only search Texas A&M, but also other land-grant schools. So you could, uh, or universities in general, you could put in rose pruning space site colon dot edu, and all your results would be from uh, websites at endon.edu, educational institutions. So you get results from LSU, from Alabama, from Mississippi State, Florida, and, and so Oklahoma State, and so on. Uh, and, and sometimes certain extension services do a, a better job than others at putting together an educational publication on a particular topic. Uh, and so I, I often will do those kind of searches. By the way, what that does is, uh, you know, if you're using a search engine like Google, is it says, I want you to look for rose pruning, but I only want you to look in websites that end in .edu. So you could do the same thing with .tamu.edu. I, I, I want you to look for this, but I only want you to look in Texas A&M University websites site colon dot tamu dot edu. That's how that works. Try it sometime because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the web and it's better to go with research-based, evidence-based sources of information. They're not selling you something. They're not, uh, they don't have an ax to grind uh, on some, some issue uh, and it just, it just hears the facts as we know them or as research has shown them. Uh, and finding those kind of sources, first of all, that's what we try to do in this radio show every day. I hope I hope I stay uh, within those boundaries. I know uh, I'm as uh, like uh, able to uh, get something wrong as anybody, but uh, I try to speak about what I know, not what I think, uh, and be a little bit careful about saying more than than I know, and use research-based sources for that. Hopefully, that makes it a better show. Uh, for you. Uh, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, the Post Oak chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas is inviting the public to the March meeting on Thursday, March 3rd. So that's next Thursday at 6.30 p.m., and the meetings are online via Zoom. And the, the email address is tinyurl.com slash frogfruit. 
So I'll say that again. T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash frog fruit. One word. One of our nice native ground covers. Uh, the topic will be anemones to bluebells, the chronology of spring blooms in the Brazos Valley. Mr. Dwight Bullmeyer will be presenting that next Thursday, March 3rd, 6.30 p.m. So you want to check that one out. Uh, let's see. We also, as far as things going on, uh, on, um, let's see, Friday, February 25th, tomorrow at 10.30 a.m., at the Brookwood Cafe, which is down in Brookshire, Texas. Now, I know that's a long way away, uh, but if you've never been out to Brookwood, that is a facility uh, for people with various types of impairments, limitations, that uh, allows them the chance to get job-type training in horticulture. They have greenhouses that they grow plants in, and you can go down and down and buy the greenhouses, or buy the greenhouses, buy the plants from them and support their programs. And it's a good cause. It's a it's the Brookwood community down in Brookshire, Texas. And I'm just going to say, go ahead and Google that and and find uh, find your locations. Um, they're going to have a talk by Mr. Bill Barr. Now, Bill is actually a personal friend of mine, and he has been he's an experienced horticulturist. He has worked with Monrovia Nurseries, Heinz Nursery, Greenleaf Nurseries. Um, and Magnolia and Eververde Ever, growers and, and others. Uh, he's an excellent propagator and a good citrus expert as well, uh, Bill Barr. And he's going to be talking about citrus for the Gulf Coast region. And it's a lunch and learn. They charge $35 for it. You get your lunch and you get a very good educational program and it goes to a good cause. Friday, tomorrow morning, 10.30 a.m., uh, little chance to get out and enjoy a road trip uh, for that one. Our phone number is 845-5689-845-5689 and email is gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. There was a question uh, from Eric about uh, the pre- emergent conversation we had last week, uh, and he's wanting to overseed an existing Bermuda lawn in the spring. And can you put down a pre-emergent, such as a crabgrass preventer, and still be able to plant Bermuda seed in March or April when he plans to? And the answer is no. Uh, No, you can't. Now, if you have a Bermuda lawn, and there's a Bermuda sprig even every six inches or so, Uh, that lawn can be brought back into a full, thick Bermuda lawn pretty quickly. Bermuda is a vigorous grower. Warmth, water, and fertilizer and sunlight, and that Bermuda will grow like crazy. So I don't know that that overseeding is going to be recommended. Uh, You could do it. You get a few more plants and things. uh, But uh, I Depending on your situation, you may have a reason to need to overseed there, uh, but I I would be very tempted to go, if it's got Bermuda uh, in the lawn, I would be tempted to go go with what you've already got. But yeah, the the pre-emergent product will control germinating seeds, uh, and especially when it's one that you're trying to control crabgrass with, that's, that's one that does a good job against germinating grass seeds, it will then help it will then unfortunately control your germinating overseeded Bermuda grass seeds. Probably not a not a good help uh, for that. Um, let's see, uh, other emails going on here. 
uh, had a question. Uh, okay, there. I'm going to go on to the next one. I'm sorry. Uh, a question about uh, planting vegetables at this time of year. What are some vegetables that I can plant now? Well, if you look at, at our planting chart, which is available at uh, brazosmg.com or brazosmg.org, I believe either way works, uh, there is a, 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 a edibles section that if you click through it, you find the vegetable garden planting dates calendar that we have. And we are at the end of February. Was, which is kind of at the end of the ideal time to plant most of our cool season vegetables. So you can plant lettuce a little longer, you can plant broccoli a little longer and so on, uh, Chinese cabbage a little longer into mid-March, uh, but it's just getting so late then that uh, by the time they reach a harvest stage, they, you know, it's, it's get, getting kind of hot. And in the case of things like spinach and arugula and lettuce, uh, they just bolt. They they take off and bolt. Uh, cilantro is the same way. Uh, the days are getting longer, and that plant gets the signal it's time to flower and die, and that's what they start to do. Uh, so we're at the end of that. If you want to get those planted, go ahead and get them in. Uh, and then starting in March, we begin our warm season planting. So I like to let it warm up a little, although gamblers can start earlier. Uh, but things like tomatoes, and peppers and bush beans and pole beans uh, can be planted at that time. Uh, once it warms, the soil warms just a bit more. Uh, we get the corn and, and, and cucumbers, eggplants, uh, good night. All kinds of, of, of things can go in at that, at that period of time. Some plants like it a little bit warmer. Uh, melons, cucumbers, peppers really like it a, a, a tad bit warmer than, than some of the other things do. Uh, but uh, you just go ahead and get them in as we move into the middle of March. We hit kind of prime time for the warm season. So I guess you could think of this as the traffic jam stage of the spring vegetable garden because all of your cool season vegetables are growing and producing or maybe even some of them still going in. And within two weeks, we're talking planting warm season vegetables. So uh, that's the traffic jam. That's the one time a year where the garden's not big enough. Uh, and then there's times of the year like midsummer where it's so blazing hot that we have probably, a, I don't know, a half dozen or up to ten uh, things that we could grow. And most some of them are kind of obscure plants that uh, we aren't part of our normal garden cuisine. Uh, let's go back to the emails and had a question from Sally about systemic granules. Uh, are they the best way to get rid of mealybugs and scale on succulents and, and things like that? I may have answered this one last week. Uh, see, I think I did. Well, let's let's go ahead and answer it. Um, systemics are are good for controlling things that suck juices out of plants. Uh, and if it's scale, it's for the soft scale, the kind that produce the the honeydew, the sooty mold, and the honeydew kinds of stuff. Um, so when they drink from the plant the juices, suck the juices out, they're ingesting the the insecticide that's in the plumbing of the plant because it's been taken up by the roots. Uh, so when a when a beneficial insect crawls around the surface of the plant, they're not crawling through sprayed uh, insecticides. Now the the um, uh, bugs they eat, the the scale or whatever they eat, if they've been 
uh, tainted with the insecticide, then the beneficials can get that too. That's a secondary kind of poisoning. The problem with, with the systemics is when a plant blooms and bees go to the blooms, uh, then you, you are doing damage to the bees. And so we try to avoid it. But the question was about succulents and like ice, uh, pencil cactus and agave. Uh, ice plants are mentioned. Ice plants do bloom a lot. So uh, if it doesn't bloom, I would use the systemic if you want. Uh, that should work just fine. Um, and uh, I, I just I kind of have mixed feelings about these. You know, we have a, we have a problem with the uh, crepe myrtle bark scale here. Uh, that it, you drive around town right now and look at the trunks of crepe myrtle trees. Some areas, the trunks are almost black. And as a result, uh, people are wanting to treat for that scale. And uh, systemics work well. But a uh, study, and I've mentioned this before, I mentioned it again, done here in the College Station area, some research, uh, looked at what kind of pollen are bees bringing back in the summer, uh, the time when crepe myrtles are blooming. And a lot of the pollen bees are bringing back to the hive are from crepe myrtles. And so if we use systemics on the crepe myrtles, there is an effect that it has on bees, and you know, as to just where it gets and whatnot. They're doing a lot of research and everything, but the bees are there. They're getting some nectar and picking up pollen and things. And so, I don't know, we, we kind of are in a quandary as to what to do about our crepe myrtles. Maybe we'll talk about that more uh, in depth uh, at another time uh, than today. Well, uh, I know we got some cold weather here. It's going to start to warm up a little, but I hope you'll support our farmers markets, uh, the ones on Saturday uh, downtown and the one for the uh, South Brazos County Farmers Market out uh, near Baylor Scott and White off University, uh, as well as the Farm Fridays out on Tabor Road at the market there. Uh, support those. Get some good local fresh fruits and vegetables as you do. And it's just fun to get out of Get outside and walk around, get a little bit of exercise, take the kids, take the dog, and have a good time. Uh, we are here every Thursday at Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter from Texas A&M AgriLife Extension, and we look forward to answering your gardening questions. If you email me during the week, I tend to wait and answer those on Thursday uh, when we're back here in the studio. But hope you have a good week and look forward to talking to you again next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.